gazing at the glory closer to the center. I'm back to counting red dots again. They're red dots that are in green pinwheels. The red dots in green pinwheels are in faux stained glass windows of the 1950s variety. I count them sometimes. I counted them, I think, when I was in the first grade. I considered it a real feat to find out how many red dots were in all the windows on both walls of the sanctuary. I'm back to doing it now, and I'm here to tell you there are five windows close to the ceiling, each with 12 red dots, which is a total of 60. There are four windows at eye level. Each of them has eight red dots, 32. That's 92 red dots inside green pinwheels times both walls is 184 red dots. I did that when I was in the first grade. And strangely, when I'm at my old home church, I'm back to doing it again, counting red dots in the window. Now, I'm not quite as excited that I can add them up now as I was then, but that goes without saying. Sometimes I count the red dots because if I look around at the people sitting there in the real church, it makes me want to count red dots. Over there is a couple who did not like me when I was a teenager, and they don't like me now. You know, Baptist not liking can be as old as dirt. It's just there. Over there, there's a sweet man. He told me in Sunday school when I was a child now, an octogenarian, he teaches the adult Sunday school class. Seems like he's got to be more like Jesus ever since I was a child. And that dear man has been disappointed in that neighborhood church so many times that I don't know. I think St. Francis would join the NRA and shoot the doves who came to land on him. That'll, but he gets sweeter all the time. And, and over, here, over here is a row of ladies. They used to be in Sunday school with my late mother. They know so much about me that it makes me nervous to sit in front of them. Over there, there's a man my age who was awkward as a child, awkward now, always seems to say something off point. He was in Sunday school that day when Terry Dan Brooks took some scissors and cut my clip-on tie in two. We were both exiled to our parents' Sunday school class, the ultimate humiliation to have to sit there for some kind of either reformative or retributive punishment. Over there is a man who used to be prominent in the city. Now, no longer prominent, he's in trouble, and he wants to renew a friendship that we had in the drum and bugle corps of the ROTC when we were in high school. Over there, well, sometimes when I get thinking about all of them, it just makes me count the red dots. It is far easier to love the church universal than it is to love the church local. I can get all sappy thinking about a beautiful Wedgwood Blue Orthodox Cathedral in St. Petersburg. It's way over there. It's a different thing to look in the pew right around me. I can feel wonderful about the National Cathedral and the great story of that, oh, that cathedral where national events are held, but it, it's another thing to look up and down the pew right by me. 
That's why we're in John 20. When Jesus looks at those around that dinner table in the upper room and looks through them at others and prays that they all might be one. You know, sometimes it helps to listen to the devil in church work. You remember screw tape? Screw tape, he first visited C.S. Lewis in his rooms at Maudlin College in July of 1941. You, you may have run into screw tape. He wrote letters to his tempter nephew, Wormwood. He wrote some letters about just that problem. Would you allow me just a minute to be... My dear Wormwood, at present time, the church is one of our greatest allies. Now, don't misunderstand me. Not the church as we see her. Not the church through all space and time rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. And that's a spectacle that makes even our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, that is quite invisible to these mere humans. No, no. You see, what your patient sees is that half-finished sham Gothic erection in some subdivision. And when he goes in, he sees the local grocer with rather an oily expression on his face bustling up to him and offering him <laughs> one little shiny book containing a liturgy that neither one of them understands and one little shabby book containing corrupt text of religious lyrics, none of them very good, <laughs> and in very small print. <laughs> and when he gets to the pew, he looks around and sees precisely that selection of his neighbors that he has hitherto avoided. Now, uh, uh, let his mind flit back and forth from great expressions like the body of Christ to the specific faces of the people in the pews around him. Doesn't make any difference who they are. <laughs> no worry. Our father below has made him a simple fool, just provided that one of them sing off-key or have boots that squeak or have a double chin <laughs> or wear odd clothes. It's quite simple to make him decide that anybody like that has a religion that is foolish. <laughs> Keep the picture in mind that he has of Christians. Right now he has a largely, he thinks, spiritual picture which is really only pictorial. His mind is full of people in togas, sandals, armor, bare legs, and the mere fact that the people in the church, in the pew, are not dressed like that gives him really even though he's unconscious of it and uneasiness. Keep that right there. Never let him really think what he thought the people in church would look like. <laughs> no, never let that rise to the surface. If you can do that, keep him hazy. You'll have all eternity to amuse yourself by producing in him that particular clarity which hell affords. Affectionately, your uncle, screw tape. You see, that's the rub of it, isn't it? 
It's not just that we have to love the church universal. We have to love those people in the pew right around us and be a community with them. We're in John 17. Maybe it's in the upper room. The firelight from the lamps causes the shadows of the eleven to play against the wall. There's still some crumbs from the Passover bread on their fingers. The tart tannins of the new Passover wine may still be in their mouth. Lamb bones askew on the plates. That light flickers in the eyes of Peter, and Jesus looks at him. But he not only looks at him, he looks through him. Jesus has already prayed for himself, and he's prayed for the eleven, but he says, I'm not asking on behalf of these alone, but those who are believing in me through their word. So use of the present tense as the future, as if it is already happening. He looks at Peter, and somehow behind the face of Peter, he sees a line of believers extending through Pentecost, Cornelius, all the way out to the horizon, says, I'm praying for them. There's John. He looks at John. And there behind John, that church at Ephesus and the Christians of Turkey and of the Greek Isles, and somehow that line snakes all the way out to infinity, and he says, I'm praying for them. He looks at Thomas. <laughs> I don't know if legend is right. Behind Thomas, he sees a line of swarthy faces and the indigenous church of India, and then he looks at that gap where Judas would have been. And maybe he sees Saul of Tarsus and the churches of the West. And he says, I am praying for them who are believing on me through these. I know we Baptists are not real comfortable with the idea of apostolic succession. And yet in one sense, we're all part of an apostolic succession, whether we acknowledge it or not. Have you ever been to that website, Ancestry.com? You can put in your name, your granddad's name, a date, and a place. And if you're willing to get out your credit card, you can see where you all came from. In a sense, if we were able, there could be a spiritual Ancestry.com. We heard from somebody who heard from somebody who heard from somebody. All the way back to those 11 around that table or the one who wasn't there, Saul of Tarsus, Paul. And we can go all the way back. And, and in since Jesus in this passage is looking at us, at Sacré-Cœur on Montmartre in Paris, the hill that looms over the city, there's a beautiful white basilica that was, that was built as a pledge by two business persons if God would prosper them. And it is the largest mosaic of Jesus in the world. Huge in the apse of the church. It's an interesting study in perspective because he's always looking at you. <laughs> if you look straight at him, he's looking at you. If you go to the far side aisle, he's looking at you. If you go to the other side, he's looking at you. If you get in a very oblique angle just to try to keep him from looking at you, he's still looking at you. There's a sense in this passage where Jesus at that supper table is looking right through those 11 at you and at me with his singular petition, I'm praying that they might be one. Do you ever think what he might have been praying about that night? I would have been distracted. 
Judas is already on his way to lead the torchlight parade of betrayal. Peter's sitting right there, hugging himself to death. I'll go to prison in death when Jesus already heard the curse of denial. And there's Caiaphas over there, <laughs> ready, ready to step on Jesus like we'd step on a cockroach in the baptistry. And there's Pilate ready to hand him over, just get him out of the way. Jesus might have been distracted, but you know what he prays? I pray that they might be one so that the world will believe that you sent me. That's not a new idea. The ancient world was at least as obsessed as we are with being one. They had theories about it. Some thought monotheism made everybody one. That was not only the Hebrews. It was also people like Plutarch. One God, we'll all be one. Others thought that our shared humanity made us one. Uh, indeed, uh, Protagoras and Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great wanted everybody to be one so much that after he licked them, he joined them. He started dressing like a barbarian and having barbarian customs, hoping that he could get everybody together and be one. Others thought, well, we'll be one if we can just get perfect laws. Read Plato's Republic. And still others had what somebody called a cosmological cosmopolitanism, about as hard to do as it is to say, and that is the whole world will just be one big happy city. Alexander and Philo shared dead in mind. They were worried about getting together, but here comes Jesus crashing into all of that failure with something that has absolutely no analogy. He says, I pray they might be one, just as I am in you, and you are in me, and we are in them. Now, if you understand that on the first reading, you are a hermeneutical Einstein. I'd like to see you after chapel. I have to think about that, just as I'm in you, you're in me, we're in them. It's literally something out of this world. <laughs> Can I make a confession to you this morning? I've already confessed I count red dots at church. <laughs> when I read that, you know what comes into my head? It's, it's a ridiculous thought. I think about those Russian nesting dolls. You ever seen them? Where there's a president inside a president or a dictator inside of a dictator. You, you can also get Barbie dolls inside of Barbie dolls now. That's a ridiculous thought, isn't it? But in a way, it's not because that's about as close as our mere finite, limited minds can get to what Jesus was talking about when he said the only thing that keeps God's people one is that they're somehow swept away into a reality that is literally out of this world. Whitaker, in his commentary on John, actually takes a whole page to draw circles, a circle inside a circle inside a circle to help us understand, but even that seems to be faintly short of the mark. We try other things to make us one. We church folks think if we can just get things organized the right way, we'll all get together. That impulse is deeply in us. If we can just all be free churches and vote on everything or connectional churches and get together, or if we could be a monarchical church and have a magisterium, a teaching authority that will keep us all one. That really works well. 
The two big churches in the world that have it, Catholicism and Orthodoxy, have mutually anathematized one another. And even though the Pope and the Patriarch meet, they have both decreed long ago that the other one is headed straight for the netherworld. Organization doesn't keep us one. Organization, oh, you can organize things. I can go to Greenwood Cemetery and look down the gravestones. They're in a perfectly straight line, but everything's dead. <laughs> ice cubes coming out of an ice cube maker. They, they're, they're uniform, but they're cold as ice. Jesus didn't pray that we'd all have the same doctrine so that we would be one. Some of us, our lives have been framed by an argument about certain doctrines. How did we get the Bible? And we've watched lives and families and churches and communities divided over arguing about that. You can't make, and you know what else? Niceness doesn't make us one. Around these parts, sometimes it seems like unity is just the doctrine of niceness. If we can just all be nice. It's nice to be nice, but niceness doesn't. See, in fact, in a seminary community where we spend all day dealing with ultimate concerns, niceness can wear thin. We've gathered here together. I mean, some of us have come from churches that maybe just almost one half step away from Unitarianism. Others of us have come from churches where we sing there's power, power, wonder-working power in the blood. And we're all right here together. And niceness can, can wear thin. If you don't think so, go back to Marburg. There's Ulrich Zwing holding out his hand. Herr Luther, we, we agree on 14 things. The only thing we can't agree on is the nature of the sacrament. Luther, I'd rather be your friends and Melanchthons than anybody in the world. Take my hand. No. Niceness can wear thin. No, it's something other than that. And that is, it's something like the mutual indwelling of the Father and the Son and us in them and being swept away by something that is absolutely a gift. It's not uniformity, it is unity. Thomas Merton, writing about this in his book on contemplation and the difficulty of it, even as a monk, says, Christian folks' minds and judgments and their desires, their human characters and faculties are all imprisoned in the slag of an inescapable egotism which pure love has not yet been able to refine. As long as we're on earth, the love that unites us will bring us suffering by our very contact with one another because this love is a resetting of a body of broken bones. <laughs> Even saints cannot live with saints on this earth without some anguish, without some pain at the differences that come between them. You say, well, is this a council of despair? No, Jesus gives a hint. A hint that I'd call gazing at the glory. Verse 22. They're overhearing his prayer. The glory which you have given to me, I have given to them. I don't know what that was. 
But it has something to do with John 1, 14. The word became flesh, lived among us. We saw his glory. It has something to do with what happened at Cana. When they saved the best wine to last, and the author of the fourth gospel says he showed them his glory. They got just enough glimpses of that to keep a group like them together. Have you ever considered the group to whom he gave the keys of the kingdom? Good night. Here's Peter. I don't have to tell you about him. Here's James and John. Why in the world do we call John the apostle of love? They said, if they won't let you in town, Jesus, let's call down fire, burn up the whole place. Here's Thomas. I doubted it all along. Here's Philip. Everywhere Philip shows up, he's clueless. You talk about an unusual church business meeting. Here's Matthew, who'd sold out to Rome to collect taxes, and, and Simon the Zealot, who would like to slit the throat of people like Matthew. How in the world did those people ever stay together, and why did he give them the keys? So one answer. Because they kept on, in spite of it all, Gazing at the glory. Every one of those signs and wonder works caused that disparate group to get closer and closer. And just like following the spokes of a wheel toward the hub, the closer you get to the center, <laughs> inevitably the closer you get to one another. But there's already and not yet in this passage because he looks out ahead to something else. He, he, he prays in verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you've given me be with me where I am in order that they may behold my glory. That's the not yet of the already. Looking far out beyond the horizon, he looks at those faces around. He knows what they're going to face. Tradition being right, all of them one dying for their testimony. Do you know that we really see more things that look glorious in a sense than they ever saw? They never saw a window like that. In those little house churches, they gathered together by lamplight, hiding for several hundred years. They never saw anything like that. They never even saw a stained glass window of a triumphant cosmic Christ. We've seen that. <laughs> they never saw a steeple crossed up toward heaven with a gold cross on top of it so that 100,000 people a day going down Interstate 35 look over and see a gold cross. They didn't have any idea anything like that would ever even happen. They never even saw a codex, a bound Bible in that primitive church. Jesus looked at them, and he knew everything they wouldn't see. <laughs> and he said, I hope someday they'll be with me so that they can see what this is all about. You might say, well, preacher, you're telling us we stay one here in a community at Truett because we gaze at the glory? Does that mean we walk around the hallways with our eyes looking up, mumbling to one another something like a chant? No. I can't really tell you any more than Jesus said in John because it is literally out of this world. I in them, you in me, I in you. Look at it. Some years ago I was preaching 
at uh, a meeting of the European Baptist Convention, those English-speaking expatriate churches in England, 60 or, in, in Europe, 60 or 70 of them. They know how to have church camp there. We were meeting at Interlaken in Switzerland. That's way better than Latham Springs, I can tell you. On a day, the late William Hendricks and I who were speaking there together decided to take the world's highest train trip. There's a train that goes from Interlaken up toward the three peaks, the Jungfrau, the Monk, and the Eiger, and the station at the top, the Jungfrau Hock, is the highest railway station in Europe. It's a cog train, small, crowded. That day it was somewhat hot. Most of the way you're going through a tunnel, and it's somewhat discouraging. All kinds of people. They're Europeans. I heard five different languages, Asians. I don't know a lot of people on the trains. It was tense, really. It wasn't a pleasant ride. We were jammed in there, speaking different languages, getting on one another's nerves. But then we came out of that tunnel at the Jungfrau Hock. And everybody got quiet. To this day, it's the most spectacular thing I've ever seen. Alpine peaks on either side, as far as the eye could see the horizon, and a massive glacier punctuated by them and going all the way toward infinity. Strangest thing happened. All of a sudden, everybody got quiet. Mouths were opened with astonishment. Eyes were agape. Hearts were pounding. So all of a sudden, we were gazing at the most glorious thing any of us had seen. And in that moment, everybody on that little cog train was one. Our hope for unity here and beyond here is that we learn what it means to gaze at the glory and closer to the center, we're closer to one another.